Blog Talk Radio. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome back to the Armchair Booking Podcast. My name is Steve, and this is my co-host, Kyle. Say hello, Kyle. Hello, and I hope everyone's having a terrific Tuesday. Yes, didn't have any tacos, but otherwise, my Tuesday's been okay. So, before we get started, just want to remind everybody, if you would like to contact us, uh, email us at armchairbookingpodcast at gmail.com. Also, go to facebook.com slash armchairbookingpodcast, and you can also reach us on Twitter, and it's at bookingarmchair. Somebody squatted an armchair booking. Yay. And they're not even doing anything with it. So when I say they're squatting, they're squatting. They need to get off of it. And if y'all see them, y'all need to tell them that. But anyway, am I forgetting anything, Kyle? No, um, I think you covered everything except that we're on iTunes, Stitcher, and there's one more. Blog Talk Radio, That's actually, they're actually the host. And I'd like to start adding to other platforms as well, and I'll be hopefully working on that here soon. Um, one thing, before we do get started, one thing, other thing I want to add, I do apologize for any of the audio problems we had last week. That was my fault. Trying out some new headphones with a microphone, and it sounded like absolute butt. And so I apologize for that. So I'll switch back to the original, which aren't the greatest, but they sound a lot clearer than what they did last week, don't they, Kyle? Sound a whole lot better than you did last week. But te- technical difficulties, much like your top ten list, and we'll just leave it at that. Oh, yeah, thank you for that slam. Uh, speaking of slams and kind of bad slams, we're gonna, today we're going to be Armchair Booking Summer Slam 1988, the very first one, the original. Hogan Savage against Million Dollar Man and Andre. What can we do Mega different? Versus Mega Bucks. Yep. Do we do anything different? Should we do anything different? But you know, SummerSlam. Now it's the number two pay per view in in WWE. But according was, to them, according to them, I'd say the number two is Royal Rumble. But that's just that's my personal preference. I, I SummerSlam based on events. I mean Royal Rumble is three for me because it leads into WrestleMania, which is obviously the number one. Right. But uh, SummerSlam is a uh, a good show. Uh, I wouldn't say it's going to be a good show this year, but I know we'd always start back at school, and one of the first things we'd watch um, was SummerSlam with some kids and the blocks and uh, away it went. I have many memories of watching SummerSlam events. Well, this particular one, the one from 1988, was August 29th. And uh, hey, the day before my birthday. Hey, I like that. Um, and this particular one, I couldn't, I couldn't watch live anyway um, because we had just moved to Kentucky. I mean, literally like three weeks before this, and I had started school about 10 days before this. Uh, so, yeah, we didn't even – I don't even think we had our stuff yet. Um, and we didn't we didn't get cable until like December. Yeah, that was not my call. I wanted cable like right away. And so we only had two channels, uh, the local channel in Hopkinsville, Kentucky, and then uh, 
no, it would show like country music videos all day and then like local news at night and it was that channel doesn't even exist anymore and then there was a religious channel and that was the only channels we could get you know so i missed out on all this stuff i had to catch i had to play catch up later on so we did watch pay-per-view and uh no lie i had the wwf magazine um covering the event and miss elizabeth's out- outfit that we'll talk about later I yeah. had that for almost 10 years before someone stole it. Oh, well, I stole it. So you need, you need to see if we can find that on the back issue. I had a whole WWF magazine collection. But SummerSlam 88, and I don't know if they had a pre-show back then. I don't think they did. They didn't. They didn't start the dark matches until uh, later on down the road. I don't know how much later. I think it had to be within a couple of years, but yeah, they weren't doing that because really they were still doing, I want to say closed circuit was still kind of the main thing. Uh, but pay-per-view was in existence. Um, you know, so it was, it was an option, I guess, depending on where you lived. So th- this event started in, in a very famous way with the British Bulldogs and the fabulous Rougeau brothers. Yes. And when I watched this, um, you know, over the, over this past weekend, um, I actually thought that match was actually pretty decent. I mean, and I know, I know you're not a fan of the time limit draws, but I thought it, it actually kind of fit in this because I mean, both teams were good. Um, and they could both, they both have, both are very good tag teams, a lot of good tag team moves, not just singles people put together just to make a team, you know, with that internet. This is like part of doing the area where they had some great tag teams, and these were two great tag teams. So you, you are correct of the first thing I'm going to mention is a 20-minute time limit, limit draw to start off your pay-per-view. I think one thing I might have changed, though, instead of 20 minutes – Change it like fifteen minutes. Um, and so, so the length of time there was no, no near fall. Um, you know how they all, uh, especially the flare matches, used to always have a near fall right at the end. But yes. this one didn't. This was a clear draw, and it's hard to tell historically. Is this before or after the famous Jacques Rougeau Dynamite Kid fight? This would have to be before. That's what I'm guessing. I'll have to look in the... So the, the Bulldogs end up leaving at the end of this year. Part of the reason because of that fight and Dynamite was all busted up. But yep. kind of the end, this is the last time we really see them in a feature match as a tag team in WWF. Yeah. And that's a shame too. And, and now one of the things that they didn't really get to do was, um, their, one of their finish, their double team finishing moves where Davy boy hits the power slam, the running power slam, the one that Braun Strowman uses now. And then dynamite comes off with the headbutt. They didn't get a chance to do that. And even, if it was 
don't remember if it was uh, Gorilla. I think that you mentioned it. Oh, and they had Superstar Billy Graham was the other commentator, which I don't know if that added or took away from the matches because Superstar is not really known as a, um, an announcer or a, com- a commentator. You know, Superstar but they didn't. Go ahead. Was good putting Superstar over. Yeah. But he's um, no Jeff Sure as an announcer. No. And Jesse had, you know, he had other duties that night, as, you know, as we'll discuss later on, because he was a big part of the main event. Um, but overall, I mean, I did think this match was really good. Um, good opener. It may, They probably could have shortened it by about five minutes instead of a 20-minute draw. I have a 15-minute draw, like I mentioned before. But otherwise, I mean, I really don't see too much to change about this one, especially since we know what happened later on when, well, I think it was Raymond first knocked out you know, Dynamite's teeth, you know, for real. Oh, Jock. With was the it Jock? Yeah. With the well, tough guy. Jock yeah. the pussy. And knocked him senseless with the roll of quarters. Knocked out most of his teeth. But if you read Dynamite's book, maybe he deserved it. Oh, yeah. I, that, I, have, Dynamite, I have Dynamite's book. But in there, well, he said it was a knuckle duster, which is... British for uh, brass knuckles. Um, but then other people are saying that it was a roll of quarters. So he just felt it. <laughs> and a roll of quarters, I'm pretty sure, would feel like brass knuckles. I'm sure, as a revisionist tough guy, it, it was brass knuckles. But according to Bret Hart's book, as a witness, it was quarters. It was quarters. So before we move on to the next match, let's go ahead and take a quick commercial break. And now we are back. Right. Next match. Inter- Interesting yeah. for number yeah. two. Yeah. Um, yeah, bad news against Ken Patera. Um, um, I, didn't think, I didn't think it was horrible, but I didn't think it was great either. Um, so, bad news, Brown. Legitimate tough guy. Judo. Judo expert, challenge Andre the Giant on a bus. Um, feuded with Hulk Hogan after this, so I could see the result. But yeah. Kim Patera was too too big um, to be. He's a believable opponent, but not the wrestler that would feature Bad News Brown. Maybe in the best light. Well, here's one one of the things they didn't mention, and and I guess it wasn't really. I know it definitely wasn't part of Bad News's character, even though I think it should have been. Both these guys are former Olympians. Because Bad News right. was an Olympic level. I mean, he was in Olympics for judo. Kempatero was an Olympic weightlifter. You know, so but that never got mentioned. And this is after Patera's um, prison stint. You know, so I mean, I know his career was never really the same after that because he had come, made his comeback not long before this. Um, and, and, and was not, I think the reason this falters here is because bad news is a definite heel. Yes. But Ken Patera is not a natural good guy. No, he's not. I mean, because he was. He was a heel before he went to prison. In fact, he was a heel. He was in the AWA when he went to prison. And 
know, and he but he was a heel in the WWF before that, and he was a heel in the AWA before he went to prison. So all of a sudden he's coming back, and he's blaming Bobby Heenan for him being in prison. And yes, I knew it was you know part of the storyline. Um, you know, his hair was no longer dyed blonde. I mean, now it's you know brown, and you know, but his he never really you know came back to where he was before. I mean, and granted, some of that could have just been that could have happened anyway. You know, regardless but, of whether or not he went to prison. But something you don't see um in today's WWF or WWE a clean finish with an awesome move from the eighties, the ghetto blaster. Yeah, which nowadays are they'd be calling it the Enziguri. Um the, what? Yes, the the ghetto blaster. I like I I did like that move because I mean you jump up and kick somebody in the back of the head, you could hurt them. So uh, I'm tremendous finisher. Uh, Definitely the right guy went over here. Just not the most exciting match. No. And, you know, and I think they put it, as far as the order of the matches, I think this one was right because, you know, the first match had a lot of good moves, you know, a lot of, you know, pretty, pretty nice spots. This one, you know, I wouldn't expect a lot of scientific moves necessarily because both these guys, you know, are big. You know, uh, Ken Patero is more jacked up than Bad News. I mean, you know, Bad News looks, you know, he never really struck me as like a real big muscle guy, but just somebody who's naturally tough. And he was. I mean, and he worked at it. I mean, obviously, you know, he's, you know, a um, big judo guy. Um, and to him to hit that move, like you said, he hit it once. He hit the move once, pinned him. That was it. It wasn't this, let me hit it, you know, three times and have you kick out of it, but I'm going to kick out of your move and then I'm, now I'm going to just do a roll up and that's it. You know, none of that crap. And, and they roll him, roll Patera out of the ring. He doesn't get up. They they roll him out and he looks like he he was definitely selling the move and, yep. and might hurt the effectiveness of the move. And if you watch it again when he did it, he actually didn't hit the move solid. Um, but he sold it really, really well. I and mean, he did what he was supposed to do. You know, and he, these two guys are pros. And this this goes into our third match with um, one of our top ten mentions last week, Ravishing Rick Rude and good old Junkyard Dog, who um, was, in, was in pretty good shape at this time, very uh, – Believable and over with the crowd, especially Man, the rest. People love the junkyard dog. Because I was a kid, I mean, I love the junkyard dog. Even when I realized, you know, he's really not that good, but he's fun to watch. He's fun to cheer. <laughs> you know. No, but that that goes into our discussion. There's a difference between a wrestler and an entertainer. Yeah. And, and the man could entertain and put butts in seats. Like he definitely had something that came off on your television or if you were in the crowd. Yes. And um, this is unique because both these guys have passed on. Yep. Everybody, of course, Bobby Heenan, you know, he was the manager. Yeah. All all three people involved in this match have since passed on. And, 
you know, and that's some absolute shame because Rick Rude, I mean, he um, necessarily in WWF either. I mean, I'm talking like wherever he was at because he was believable. Um, the ending of the match had to do Wait, with the. Fine. Go ahead. This, this is the best heel move of 1988. And if right. I were a wrestler, I seriously. <laughs> Um, putting your rival's wife or girlfriend on your tights and squeezing your butt cheeks, you mimic kisses as you flex, flex your glutes. It's absolutely brilliant. Like, the thoughtivity in this move is incredible and enhanced the feud between the bigger feud between Rick Rude and Jake Roberts. Yeah. You know, and Jake came in and, you know, of course, it cost JYD the match, you know, but he, I guess, you know, I guess JYD was like, all right, I understand. Of course, my face was on his other, his outer pair of tights, you know, but it's your wife on the inner pair of tights. And Rick Rude had a bunch of tights. Custom-made tights. You don't see in today's ring attire, but just airbrushed anything. But what a way to enhance his feud with Jake Roberts. Yeah. And <laughs> that that uh, that's a really forgotten angle from from the eighties. Did. It's quite memorable. Yeah. <laughs> and see, I thought that was a little bit later on. I didn't realize it was here in 1980. For some reason, I was thinking it was around 89. Or so, of course, it may have carried into 89. Rick Rude goes on Beach JYD here, goes over on Jake Roberts, wrestles the Ultimate Warrior at WrestleMania Five, wins the Intercontinental title. Um quite a successful year of SummerSlam 88 to SummerSlam 89. Probably his best year in the company. Yeah, I could see that. I mean, yeah, maybe his best year in his career because, I mean, he was getting some pretty good paydays, I imagine. Um, and he, he had, like, the best mustache, period. That's another thing from the 80s are the, the mustaches from the wrestlers and and he had the mullet. And, the, well, the mullet or the perm. <laughs> what what a contrast. Jake Roberts, Rick Rue, Junkyard Dog in the third match. And, and I don't disagree with the result uh, or the placement of the match. But you go from Rick Rude and the Junkyard Dog to the Powers of Pain and the Bolsheviks. The one thing that threw me off about this, because when I first looked at the, the lineup, I'm like, these are two heel teams. No. I, had, I had completely forgotten, or really didn't even think about the powers of pain went into the WWF as faces. They did. And, and Baron Von Raschke was their freaking manager. And, and that is that is a man... Uh, from the AWA 
that just did not fit as a manager? No, he didn't. Um, especially they're calling him the Baron, and he didn't really show his face. He's in the hood, you know, the hooded robe, and he kind of almost resembled Kevin Sullivan. Um, in fact, it kind of reminded me a lot of Kevin Sullivan. They may have been trying to go for that kind of uh, feel about it, but you know, he's an old school guy. You know, the Iron Claw, you know, being his finisher. But the Barbarian and the Warlord, I just it's hard for me to buy them as faces. Even watching this match is hard for me to buy them as faces, especially when they're going against the Russians. And these two guys are supposed to be like the All-American. You know, anytime, anytime you had somebody going against the Russians back then, it, you know, of course they're automatically going to be, you know, like All-American type. And the Barbarian's not even American. I mean, he is now, but he's from Tonga. Right. And now they – the reason I brought up the finishing move with the Bulldogs and the Rougeaus, the Powers of Pain actually did that move. The Warlord did the running power slam. Barbarian came off the top rope with the headbutt. Boom, one, two, three. You know, so it, now looking back, it may have been so, well, we, we can't really have the Bulldogs do it if the Powers of Pain are going to do it later on. The Powers of Pain are this newer team, and we need to try to get – we're trying to get them – a push, and the Bulldogs, I think they were already starting to walk out the door. Like I said, by the end of the year, they were gone. Right. I, I don't know if they had the foresight uh, or if they just didn't want to have a winner. Uh, I think WWF with the fabulous Rougeaus looking back through history, like no, no title run for them. Not, not a tag team champs, anyway. Very serviceable tag team. Great theme song. Uh, yeah. I, <laughs> yeah. I tortured young kids on, on a field trip <laughs> and locked the windows so they couldn't. Yeah. So, all American boys, tremendous theme song. Uh, it's played in my car occasionally. But I wonder if you could have flipped this and put the Bulldogs and the Bolsheviks and the Powers of Pain versus the Rougeaus. And that would them. probably make more sense. Well, I don't know. The Bulldogs and the Rougeaus, I mean, they had been already involved in a feud. So um, this this match was kind of like a filler in a way. Um, so maybe it's because the powers of pain are just coming in from WCW or the former NWA. I think they came in with Dusty are very close to him. Um, um, yeah, I think Dusty came in not long after this, maybe. So maybe this is to just to get them over, like you said, put them on the card. But I don't see the Bolsheviks with Nikolai Volkov and Boris Zukov like really doing that. Like maybe because they're big guys, it's more believable and more physical to get that side of them over. But you know what? Also, they. They they probably should have done switch managers. Slick 
would have made more sense being with the powers of pain. The Baron, Baron von Roschke, would have been better off with the Bolsheviks because him, he was supposed to be from Germany, even though he's actually from like Nebraska. And of course, the Russian, you know, Boris Zukov, he's from South Carolina. And Nikolai Volkov, though, he's from Croatia. So, I mean, you know, close enough. Well, hold on. Nikolai Volkov was from Baltimore at the end. At the end, yeah, because he ran for public office. Right. So, yep. um, but it, it's funny how the evil foreign heels were booked. It, looking back with today's vision into cards of yesteryear, how some of these guys hone their crafts being foreigners. Well, one of the things, I'd have to find the video. If I, if I can find it, I'll send it to you. Um, and you may have seen this already, and I only call it a snippet of it, where Nikolai, he was at like a baseball game, and he was in character, if you want to call it that. Um, and he was singing the Russian National Anthem, and then all of a sudden he switched, and he started singing the Star Spangled Banner. Right. You know, and uh, I, thought that, I thought that was actually kind of cool, you know, when he did that. He did it with uh, Hacksaw Jim Duggan. Remember, Sergeant Slaughter with heel and Volkov became a face. Well, this this wasn't at a wrestling event. This was like at a baseball game. And I only, I only saw him. I mean, Hacksaw may have been there. But the the video that I saw, I only saw Nikolai. Or Joseph, you know, his real name. Joe. Uh, this goes into match five. Probably the most memorable or replayed match from SummerSlam 88. One of the greatest SummerSlam matches ever. Because Honky Tonk Man finally got the beating that we had been waiting a year plus for. Yes. And I wanted to see him get beat. And it just pains me to think that he held that title for that long and he still has the record for the longest single reign and I'm the greatest intercontinental, intercontinental champion ever. And I'm like, uh, all the people that held the title, talk man, be the guy who held it for that long. Besides the fact that he was good friends with Mr. Balea. Yeah, no, well, that's just my opinion. I, because there was a face champion, you needed the wormy intercontinental champion to balance out the cards. And he did put wrestling, he did put butts in seats because 30 years later, we're still talking about this man getting his butt kicked. We're talking, well, yeah, we're talking about this one match. So, I, I mean, and it wasn't much of a match. It was, he, Brutus Beefcake was his original opponent. Uh, one of the first time he saw blood on WWF regular television was when Ron Bass Burrs, yep, Cowboy Ron Bass, tore, tore up his face, which meant Honky Tonk Man didn't have an opponent at SummerSlam 88. And all you hear is the Warriors music hit, the man run down to the ring, I think it was, what, three punches, a shoulder tackle, and a splash, and that was it. Yeah, because I think Honky Tonk said he was not going to let him do his press slam because of where Warrior's right hand usually ended up yep. when he would press slam people, and he's like, you ain't doing that to me. 
And so, and I don't blame him. I can't blame him for that one bit. Um, so, I, I mean, and really, watching the honky get beat, the crowd erupted. Yeah, everybody wanted to see him get beat. Like, get the belt off of him. And this brought on the era of, like, because Warrior did this with both titles, but how many different backstraps did he have for the Intercontinental title when he wore it? And matching trunks and everything. You know, that's a good question. But hey, we're a half hour in, and it's time for another commercial break. It is. So we'll take one right now. And we are back which, with match number six, which kind of a yawner of a match, to be honest with you. I, know, I At this point, I did not care. And even historically and watching Dark Side of the Ring, I did not care to watch Dino Bravo. And... I was never a fan of Don Morocco. The original rock. Everybody forgets that. So I know I've watched some Fuji Vice from the 85 with him and Morocco, and that was kind of funny. <laughs> I forgot about that, Fuji Vice. I, I, I was not into Don Morocco at this time. I did not care for this match. Or and then it just ended. I because I turned my head just for a second, and I also heard one, two, three. I looked up and I said, "Yeah, you know what? You know." And it was like it, it wasn't even really a finishing move, from what I remember. And I had so much disinterest in this match, I didn't even bother rewinding and finding out how he beat him. You had that, which which was really just putting people on the card. And then you go to maybe one of the best worked match uh, of the night, and that's Demolition as the tag team champions with Mr. Fuji against the Hart Foundation. Well, they had Mr. Fuji and Mouth of the South, Jimmy Hart, was also in, in their corner. Now, he was sent back to the dressing room, but, of course, he returned later on. This had been right not long after the Heart Foundation turned face. Right. So demolition that this was, they, they, were, they had beaten Strikeforce at WrestleMania 4. Yes. And they're three months into their year-plus reign as tag team champions. One of the things that struck me, and I found this interesting, was Axe and um, – no, I'm sorry, Smash, um, Barry Darso. He and Jim Neidhart were former tag team partners. And Mid-South, right? Mid-South, and I think they had moved down to Florida for a little bit, you know, not very long, uh, because – this is when I first started reading the magazines, and they'd have, you know, just basically like these quotes from these wrestlers because Neidhart 
at the time. They were both playing um, Russian sympathizers, sorry, because Barry Darso, he was going by the name Crusher Darso, then he changed it to Crusher Khrushchev. Neidhart never changed his name, but he was, you know, I remember seeing some of the, you know, the fake interviews, and he was saying the Kremlin was giving him an award and blah, 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 and things like that. And then I went over to somebody's house, you know, the one I told you where they had the great big honking satellite dish, and there he was teamed with Bret Hart. And I'm like, is this the same guy that was with? And I was like, wait a minute, that's right, because Crusher Khrushchev, you know, he just came up to the mid-Atlantic, and he's with the Russians, and you know, so that part I thought was interesting was going back a little bit further in history, you know, about uh, three years, three, four years before this, you know, when they were partners. And it's not, it's just not really mentioned too much, but, but I remember it just from the magazines. So, oh, overall, that back and forth match. Yeah, good match. The addition of Jimmy Hart and Mr. Fuji um, come, comes into play at the end where Bret Hart's about to attempt a pile driver and yep. Axe hits, hits him in the head with the megaphone from Jimmy Hart and Smash pins him while they're all being distracted because Jim Nightheart is chasing Mr. Fuji. All the sideshow comes into play in the finish. So that yeah. that seems to to fit. And, and then and then it all kind of comes to a head a little bit more at the Survivor series just a few months later because with demolition right now they're heels. Mr. Fuji's a manager, but it was just that's the Survivor Series where they pulled the double turn where they turned face the power of pain, the powers of pain turn heel. Um, but anyway, I digress. So next match on the card, so this match seven, the big boss man with Slick and the bird man, Coco Beware with Frankie. Another guy that was just so over with everybody. Everybody loved Coco Beware. Our Frankie. Yep. <laughs> yeah. And Coco Beware, I mean, I always thought he was fun to watch. He had a lot of good moves. Um, I thought his, his drop kicks were some of the best in the business. You know, um, kind of a smaller guy. So a lot of times a, a smaller guy is almost like an automatic, okay, you're going to be a flyer. You know, nice. just like, I mean, that's what it kind of – a smaller, he may have been like our size, but for a wrestler, you know, he's actually a little he, bit on small size. He was shorter, but he was pretty thick and muscular. Oh, yeah. He was muscular. Yeah, so I'm talking about, well, height-wise. So, I, I'd say just shorter than wrestlers of the 80s. He was not the larger-than-life appearing wrestler but definitely the personality, the the highlight of the Pile Driver album from '87 had the bird, had all the colors. Like definitely uh, Hall of Famer, and the 
different being so colorful back back in that period. Yes, and he was a good, lovable character, but he wasn't too cartoonish. But Boxman uh, coming out to Chai Sobro <laughs> really putting a beating on Coco twice in this match should lays it to him when it starts, refuses to pin him, and then tries to squash Coco from the top rope, which is crazy. His boss yeah. man's 300 pounds. You have the return with Coco and his high-flying offense, and then you have the uh, boss man slam to kind of finish it. Like, it fit, but I, I... I don't think I'd really change much about the match. Um, because, I mean, it was a clean finish. It made sense because Boss Man was, you know, still new. Uh, Coco was, well, hadn't been in there that long. Um, Boss Man, a little bit of credibility to beat Coco. Uh, granted, Coco, his, um, his finishing move at the time was a brain buster. Yeah, that was never happening at all, Boss Yeah, that wasn't going to happen in this match. Uh, so that was one thing I'd say maybe y'all should have thought about that. You know, what's, what's a secondary finishing move for him against for somebody who maybe he can't get up to do the brain buster. Um, but, you know, like, I mean, it wasn't horrible. Like I said, I thought it made the ending made sense. So I can't really you know, say too much about that. Uh, it wasn't too long. So I, I wasn't going – this match ever going to end because it's actually longer than the uh, the Dino Bravo Morocco match. And that match, I was like, this thing going to end anytime soon because, like you know, you know, both said we just weren't that interested in it. And well, of uh, uh, most of the matches, like placement, I, I just don't see how so many of these guys like ten matches on a three-hour SummerSlam card. Like, wouldn't they have been better off with seven quality matches in, instead of ten? And, you know, the sad thing, I don't even think it was three hours. I'm actually looking for that right now. Because the next match is Jake Roberts, who's a face at this point, and Hercules, who is a heel. Hercules, also known as Assassin Number Two, uh, our Hercules Fernandez, big yep. jacked up, our excuse me, power from the great team Power and Glory, who had one of the best tag team finishing moves ever. Yes, they did. Should have gotten Love that one. the power play. Yes, and I'm glad that the revival and our now FTR. I'm glad they brought it back a couple times. I was like, yes, I love that move. But yeah, this but, match. Um, uh, I, the placement of the match right before the Mega Powers. I mean, I guess it kind of set that up well nicely, and it was long enough. Unfortunately, I think it may have been set up as like the bathroom break match for people yeah, in the well, audience. It, it's the drawdown match, but I can't see where they got really 
really lifted up. Yeah. And, and that that's the hard thing looking at this from a historical perspective. And, and Hercules, for his this at this point in his career, not really treated as a a viable contender. I think Hogan had already went through him. He had the feud with Billy Jack Haynes, who had who had left, but almost filler at, at this point. I think they could have swapped this match out with probably the Bravo Morocco match, or one thing they could have done different was because you know Jake just had that whole thing with Rick Rude. You know, just six matches before this, have Rick Rude come out and distract him, you know, and cause him to run out of the ring, get counted out. So now um, he's also lost this match. You know, well, and, yeah. I, I and I don't disagree with the way this one ended. I mean, he got the ending clean with the DDT. I mean, and it was a couple of times where he tried to put the DDT, and of course, Hercules, nope, he didn't do that to me, or he backed up, I and mean, he was doing whatever he could to not get DDT'd, which I don't blame him. Because back then, the DDT actually meant something. And you know, so I didn't think that part was bad, but if anything could have changed, you know, have them continue that because what was the point of Jake going against Hercules? You know, Jake was already over. Hercules, I mean, yeah, you know, he was a viable opponent, but what did it really mean for Jake to beat him? You know, it's like why? Okay, why are you burying? Like you said, you know, why are you burying Hercules? So, but that's just one thing I would change. Just have Rick Wood get in, get involved, you know, somehow. So, anyway, but they they have this, and this leads to the Mega Powers being Hulk Hogan and Macho Man Randy Savage, and the Mega Bucks, which is Ted DiBiase and. Andre, the giant with Virgil in the corner, and Bobby Heenan, and but well, can't forget about Bobby Heenan. And then to add to this, they make Jesse Ventura as the special guest referee. I did like the videos leading into this where they showed DiBiase shoving the hundred dollar bills into Ventura's pocket. I'm trying to say, I'm blatantly buying off the referee. Definitely. And the counter was Hulk Hogan and Randy Savage training together for for this match with their secret weapon. And the secret weapon was discussed for a month on television. Well, I'm, I'm pretty sure you're on the Wikipedia page. There's a picture of the secret weapon, too. Well, the, yeah. Well, we talked about <laughs> that, but... Um, interesting match. So this is one of the few times, and we talked about WrestleMania one briefly. A main pay per view is led, being evented by a tag team match. Yes. Um. Now WrestleMania, they they will never have the world title not being defended again. Um, because they said they, they should have. That's one mistake they said they did at WrestleMania 1. With this being SummerSlam, 
you can get away with it, especially when your world champion is is teaming up with you're still your face of the company, going against the two most hated people in the company at the time. Yeah, you know, so that's still going to draw a lot of money, and it's still going to be something everybody wants to see. And then you throw it all the added drama with. Jason Ventura being the special guest referee. I mean, of course, he's a heel. Everybody knows he's a heel. And he used to be Randy Savage's tag team partner. And I know they brought that up as well. You know, he used to be his partner, you know. And, um, you know, and now the match itself, to be honest with you, eh, you know, Andre was very immobile. He couldn't do a, a whole lot. Um, you know, and DiBiase was good. Um and him and Savage, if they were just putting the majority of their time in there, I think the match would have been better. Uh, now, Hogan did surprise me because he did some moves he doesn't normally do. Um, one of his things where he'll drop the multiple elbows, right. the multiple elbow drops on something, boom, up, boom, you know, get up, boom. You know, he did that, which is something I thought he, he should have done a lot more often, but he didn't. And at one point, he put a sleeper hold on DiBiase. You know, just for a second. Um, but it was like he put him in the sleeper hole just to hold him for Randy. Um, it's interesting to see, watching this and knowing what's going to happen now, but at the time, how well they they worked together as a team. They did. Um, Where uh, Andre, being immobile, Ted DiBiase being as good as he was, like he ran circles around dudes in the ring, but nothing earth shattering uh, about the the match, the the quality, uh, a lot of brawling because there's four four dudes in the ring. What's memorable about the match is the finish. Yes. So they they're going back and forth and they're arguing because Jesse Ventura is clearly biased towards DiBiase and the Giant, and Ventura is distracted. He gets starts arguing with Elizabeth. Who is in? Would you say a gold dress? Yeah, I mean it was. It definitely matched the outfit they wore in the evening, and basically strips down into not a bikini, but a, a very. Basically, she showed her panties. Well, they kept saying that. If you look, it's more of a leotard than anything else. Um, or like it, maybe like a one-piece bathing suit, but you just see the bottom. That's what I'm guessing. I seriously doubt they're going to let her get in there and just show her drawers. This isn't, you know, Attitude Era. This is 1988. It's 10 years before the Attitude Era. You know, but either way. It's the most skin that's been shown on WWF television to this point. Yes, but it, it it's not. She posed in posters that I may have bought as a child. That may, maybe more, <laughs> showed more than 
what she had on that day. But it um, was the shocking and revealing because she was so humble and gracious and elegant and I just wonder how much they had to talk Randy into doing that because it's been well documented about how um, I don't know if protective is a, a word or controlling is a word which one's the better somewhere in between possessive possessive yes but how he was with Elizabeth and you know how the real life stuff came out you know later on and it's led into rumors about him dotting Hogan's eye before Wrestlemania 9 um and but we know how Randy was all of a sudden uh to allow her you know to do that you know, that's another reason I'm saying it's probably not actual panties. It's probably, you know, like a bathing suit bottom, um, if I really had to guess. Hey, but, uh, you need a second because I think it's time for a break. And I do believe you're correct, sir. And we have returned. And so... <laughs> This match is more famous in historical hindsight because of the Macho Man's videos about Hogan being jealous. And if the way that all played out, it, because this was planned a year in advance, this is brilliant storyline writing and something that's missing from WWE today. Yeah, because they do everything more or less of a hot shot, and they don't actually have wrestlers. When they bring in Hollywood writers, like they're writing stories, not, not people who are really inter- too interested in wrestling. So that yeah, they made it. Uh, is when the match ends, Savage would always put Elizabeth on his shoulder. And in this, at the end of this pay per view, Hogan lifted her up, put her on Macho Man's shoulder. And you know what? And I was purposely watching for that this time because, you know, it's been covered on other podcasts, you know, some of Conrad Thompson's podcasts, um, and they've actually talked about that. That was part of the story was him doing that. And so I purposely watched it. I saw it, and I was like, yeah, I guess he did, didn't he? So, yeah, watching that and remembering the Hogan jealousy videos, you'd lost in Perfect. Just brilliant foresight because you have that and then you had Macho Man looking at him. Then they go into Survivor Series where um, one of them got handcuffed. Then you have the accidental elimination from the Royal Rumble all the way to Saturday night's main event where Elizabeth got hurt and they brawled in the medical room leading into WrestleMania five. Like this is perfect for event planning on the WWF's part. And just even the way they took the warrior 
Warrior goes, what, number two at WrestleMania five, beating Honky Tonk Man. <laughs> and just wow. And then Demolition with the face turn at Survivor Series going into um, losing the title to the Brain Busters at the beginning of the following year. But, man, they they took care of business when it came to storylines back then. And that's what makes the event so significant. And it wasn't really just the WWF that would write the stories out that far in advance. A lot of the territories did. But I think they had an advantage um, because Vince, you know, this is when he was still kind of expanding everything out nationwide. At this point, he already was doing events across the country, not just in the Northeast. But with his vision, I mean, he was very, very focused on that. And so that's why the storylines ended up being, you know, that good and that well thought out. And, you know, you really believe that Savage is want, wanting to just not just beat him, wanting to kill Hogan because Savage is the champion, but he's the one ch- making the challenge to Hogan because, you know, he something he perceives that Hogan is doing with his um, – I don't know if they were married. Oh, I think they were married at the time, but they didn't really say they were married yet. Then they got married while they were going through a divorce, but whatever. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, um, but yeah, it was uh, in this right here. You know, of course, we wouldn't know. We had to go back and rewatch it because Savage is saying, you know, Hogan, you had your hand on on my wife's butt. Yeah. So. Um, then I said, "Did he really? Okay, let's go back. Oh, he did." And yes, you know, so, but yeah, it was it was very just brilliant story writing. But but besides that, though the the card as a whole was not that good. You know that match was decent. Um, the first, you know, the, the Bulldogs and the Rougeaus was good. Uh, demolition the, and demolition heart foundation. I mean, of course, here's our one thing: these are all the tag team matches. Um, yeah. And for a guy that doesn't really like tag team wrestling, and and the result of the intercontinental title match was, good. I mean, yeah. The match, oh, the match itself was horrible. I mean, really. I mean, you're anytime you have a thirty second match, it's not going to be great. You know, it's not going to be a five-star match. I mean, you haven't done enough to earn five stars. Uh, you haven't barely even done enough to earn a star. But, you know, the end result was good. Um, but a couple of these matches, it's like, really? They went against, you know, we were talking about now. It's like, really? They went against each other? Why? Just just to have filler. And yeah. I know that was one thing. Yeah, they, they had some brilliant writing on one side, but then they also had filler you know, on the other. So, but either way, you know, I've mentioned the things I would change, you know, and it's really not that much. The ending of Andre, well, Hogan Savage and then Andre and DiBiase, I don't think I wouldn't have changed that ending, especially as we know where it led to later on because it didn't lead to anything unreasonable. You know, everything just... The endings, for the most part, made sense. You know, so that part I can't really complain about. What say you? I mean, 
we change a, a little bit, I change match order and a finish to start the pay-per-view. Yeah, like I said, I didn't really have an issue with it being the draw because these two teams that are very equal, and it kind of showed that. I would have just changed the the amount of time they were in there from 20 minutes to 15 minutes. But, well, my friend, but, we are about at the, well, we are, we're getting kind of close in time, so let's go ahead and discuss what we're going to be doing next week. So next week we are going to discuss the top 10 tables or factions in wrestling. And I think we're going to have a very lively discussion because you grew up more NWA and I grew up more watching other things. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And so we definitely invite any kind of uh, listeners. We definitely invite your input. Hit us up on the, uh, on Facebook. Like I said, facebook.com slash armchair booking podcast. Email us armchair booking podcast at gmail.com. Hit us up on on Twitter, you know, booking armchair on Twitter. Uh, yeah, just let us know, you know, your thoughts about the factors. Let us know your opinions of the show every, with all the episodes. And I have had people tell me in person, coworkers, people at church that, that actually do listen. They have given me feedback, and I'm and I'm very very grateful for that. You know, so uh, just definitely keep it up. Don't be afraid to, you know, that's what we're here for. I mean, we can't if these things something's wrong, we can't. We can't improve unless we know about it. That's it. Yep. And so that's what Kyle and I, we've been trying to do. We just want to make sure we get as high quality as what we can. Um, and any kind of technical, technical difficulties aside, hopefully I don't have those again like we had last week. Um, I've actually taken care of some of that. Hopefully we'll all make the, at least the sound quality on my end even better in the days and weeks to come. But on that note, Kyle, we are coming close to the end. You got any last words? No, I remember SummerSlam fondly, Elizabeth more fondly, and can't wait to have the discussion next week. Yes, sir. And on that note, my friend, I will go ahead and bid you a fond farewell, and I'll be hitting you up this week. See ya. All right. See you later.